Our God in heaven, as we come now to your word, Lord, you have you've convicted my heart this week. You've challenged me this week, Lord, and I pray that you would do that now for all of us. Lord, you want to fill us completely and wholly with your spirit so that we may be your body and be called to do your work in the world. So, Lord, I pray that this word from you today would speak to us, that we would meet you in it, and that we would be changed today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the last three weeks, we've been talking about three events in the life of Jesus uh, that we're told about at the beginning of the book of Acts. And I would encourage you to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading through most of Acts chapter 2 uh, in, throughout the sermon this morning. We've been talking about these three events in the life of Jesus that empowered and equipped the disciples to continue the work of Jesus in the world. The three events were the commission of the disciples, the ascension of Jesus, and the sending of the Spirit. The commission, the ascension, and the sending of the Spirit. The first event that we looked at a couple weeks ago was the commission. Jesus told his disciples, I am going to leave you. And that they, when he leaves, are then they are going to go into the world, in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and they are going to be his witnesses. He gives them their identity as his witnesses, and their task to go into all the world and to be his witnesses. The disciples get their orders from their master. In Acts chapter 1. The second event that we talked about last week was the ascension of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, descended to earth as a human being, was born as one of us, lived as one of us, died on the cross as one of us, was raised from the dead as one of us, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father as one of us in order to make a place for humanity in the presence of God. The ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. In Ephesians 4, uh, Paul talking about the ascension, he says that Jesus ascended to the heavenly places so that he could fill the whole universe with his presence. And what Paul was referring to here is the sending of the Spirit into the world. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. That Christ ascended so that he could fill the whole universe with the presence of his Spirit. So this third event that we see at the beginning of the book of Acts that empowered and equipped the disciples to go and to be witnesses to Jesus was the sending of the Spirit. Jesus sends his very own Spirit, the same Spirit that anointed him for his ministry, the same Spirit that enabled him to heal the sick and to teach with authority and to show compassion to those who are hurting, that very same Spirit is the spirit that he sends into our lives as well. So that as his people, as those who are called to be his witnesses, as we go into each and every place that we are sent to, we carry with us the presence of Jesus. So this morning we're going to look at this great event of Pentecost, the the sending of the Holy Spirit. If it wasn't for Pentecost, we would not be here today. 
If it wasn't for Pentecost, we would not know about Jesus' death and his resurrection. It was God's gift of his spirit that empowered his church to go to the ends of the earth and that continues to empower his church today. You are able to know Christ today because of what happened at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was one of the seven yearly Jewish feasts in the life of Israel. Pentecost is the festival known as the Feast of Weeks in the Hebrew Bible. And the Jews were told that they were to count seven full weeks after the Passover, and that at that time that they were to go to Jerusalem and they were to bring the first fruits of their harvest to the temple as an offering to God. So all the Jews throughout the world were called to and expected to come to Jerusalem to bring the first fruits of their harvest as an offering to God at the Feast of Weeks. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask then the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. God does nothing by accident. Right, Gary? God does nothing by accident. That's something that Gary has taught me in my time that I've been here. God does nothing by accident. God's sending of his spirit on the day of Pentecost, the festival of the harvest, is a symbol of God equipping his people to be workers in the harvest field. Because on that day, Peter and the disciples saw the first fruit of God's harvest as 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. Jesus has commissioned his disciples to be his witnesses. He has ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father. And here on Pentecost, he empowers them to do the work that he has called them to do, to be his witnesses. Jesus asks for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his field. And the Lord of the harvest has answered by sending his spirit to equip those workers to go into the field and to bring a harvest into the kingdom of God. Those 3,000 people were the first fruit of the harvest of God's church. So this morning, I want to talk us through the first, a few parts of Acts chapter 2, and I, I've put this in outline form there in your, in your bulletin, in the notes. First, I want to connect the events of this day of Pentecost with an Old Testament story that we talked about a few months ago, probably four or five months ago, when we looked at the story of the Tower of Babel. And second, I want to look at two things that we see the Spirit do on the day of Pentecost. And that is that he calls all people to repentance and salvation through the preaching of the word. And he creates a new community. The Spirit does all kinds of things, but those are the two things that I want to mention today. That he calls all people to salvation and repentance, and he creates a new community. If you haven't already, turn to Acts chapter 2. And as I said, we're going to read through most of this chapter today at different parts of, this, of my sermon. So I would encourage you to turn there so you can follow along. I'm going to begin by reading Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, that is, all the disciples, were together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, uh, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues." Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. In the first part of this chapter, we find all of the followers of Christ gathered together in one place, and they have been praying for over a week. God told them to wait until the the promised Spirit came to them. And so they've been praying and waiting for the Spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit does come on them. And what's the very first thing that the Spirit enables them to do? It enables them to speak different languages so that people from all over the world can understand them. Acts 2 tells us that there's people from all over the world who are gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, the Feast of Weeks. They have gathered from all over the world. They've come and they have brought their offerings to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem at this time is packed with pilgrims from all over the world. And the very first thing that God enables his disciples to do is to speak in their native languages so that they can hear the gospel in their own tongues. What does this mean? It's the question that the people were asking. What does this mean? I think it can mean a lot of things, but I want us to think about, as we've been looking at the Bible and God's mission and how this is all one story that God has been telling from the beginning of creation, I want to connect this story of Pentecost with the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that story from four or five months ago? I'm a little behind here. We'll catch us up. One of the stories, there are four stories in Genesis uh, 3 through 11 about the fall of humanity. And the last one is the story of the Tower of Babel. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Begin by reading verses 1 through 4. The writer of Genesis says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. People of Babel were a close-knit community. They were very unified together. That's the very first thing that Genesis tells us about the people of Babel. They were unified together. They had one common language and one tongue. And they want to build this city and this tower. But for what purpose? To make a name for themselves. And so that they will not be scattered throughout the face of the earth. 
And both of these two reasons, their motivations for building this city and this tower, go directly against God's purposes for human beings. Earlier in Genesis, we read that God's purposes for human beings was that they would be fruitful and multiply, that they would fill the whole earth, and as human beings made in the image of God, that they would fill the whole earth with the image of his glory. Or to put it another way, God's purposes for humanity is that they would fill the whole earth and make a great name for God as those who bear his image. But instead, the people of Babel, rather than filling the whole earth and making a great name for God, they want to stay in one place and make a great name for themselves. You see the problem here. In the ancient world, almost every city that was built was dedicated to a certain god. And whenever a city would be built, there would be a temple or a tower that would be built in the center of the city. It would be the largest or the tallest building of that city, and it would be dedicated to a particular god. And what's happening in Babel is that they're doing the same thing, but they're not making a temple or a tower dedicated to God or some god. But they're making a tower to make a name for themselves. They're building a city centered on the plans and purposes of man. The people of Babel had either forgotten or ignored their purpose, and they're seeking to make a tower to reach to the heavens so that they could sit in the place of authority. And so what does God do in response? God confuses their language, and he scatters them over the face of the earth so that the goals and the purposes of the people of Babel would be thwarted. But we see here on the day of Pentecost that when the Holy Spirit comes, that God reverses the curse of Babel. The very first thing that God does is gives his disciples the ability to speak in all sorts of languages so that the men and the women who were gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world could hear and understand the gospel. At the Tower of Babel, God confuses the languages of Babel in order to thwart their purposes to make a great name for themselves. But on the day of Pentecost, God brings clarity. God, through his people, is now at work to make a great name for Jesus. And God is going to equip his disciples to do that. God brings clarity by overcoming this barrier that, if you've ever been in a different language or a different country, you've experienced this barrier that exists between us and other people who we can't speak to. We can't uh, articulate ourselves. We can't understand one another fully. Well, here on the day of Pentecost, God overcomes that barrier in the life of his disciples and gives them the ability to speak in these different languages so that those who are in Jerusalem at that time can go back to their friends and to their families and tell them about who this Jesus is in their own tongue. The day of Pentecost, God reverses the curse of Babel in the life of the church. The work of the Holy Spirit is to make a great name for Jesus. That is the work of the Holy Spirit And on the day of Pentecost, we see God at work giving his disciples this gift so that they could make a great name for Jesus. So for the rest of the time this morning, I want to talk about two ways in particular that the Spirit is at work to do this. The way the Spirit is at work to make a great name for Jesus. First, in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is at work to call all people to salvation and to repentance And secondly, the Spirit is at work to create a community centered on Jesus. 
In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit equips Peter to preach the word, and at his preaching of the word, 3,000 people come to repentance and salvation. And I want to read Peter's sermon to you. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact." Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It's a pretty good sermon. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, into the joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Paul in Ephesians calls the word of God the sword of the spirit. In Acts, after Peter preaches his sermon, what does he say? Or what are the people's reactions? What does it say about them? They were cut to the heart. This was the Spirit's sword, the word of God that was being spoken by Peter that day. The word of God pierces the hearts of people. 
When the Spirit empowers his people to truly speak the word of God, it exposes our hearts. It lays open the thoughts and desires and hopes of people's hearts. And in response to the word of God, people have to respond in some way. We've heard this message now about the Messiah, so what should we do? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. So what is repentance? Repentance is more than regret or feeling sorry. It includes that, but it is more than that. True repentance requires turning around and going in a different direction. It is turning away from our own way, from our own purposes, and turning toward God and his purposes for us. The Holy Spirit, the sword of the word of God, exposes our heart. It reveals to us the places in our lives where we are living for ourselves, living according to our own plan, living and walking in darkness. And the word reveals to us that we need to turn away from those things and turn to Jesus who calls us to live in the light and who calls us to the true life of his salvation. In Peter's sermon... The Holy Spirit equips him to proclaim the word of God that pierced the hearts of the people who were listening. And so one of the things that we see the Spirit doing throughout the book of Acts is calling people to speak the word of God, which will call people then to salvation. We also see the Spirit at work creating a new kind of community. After Peter's sermon, Luke tells us that a new kind of community began to be formed in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, there's another very similar description to this new kind of community that the Spirit was forming there in Jerusalem. The people of Babel were formed around the purpose of making a great name for themselves. This powerful group of people in that time came together to accomplish something. But with all of their abilities and their competencies, they forgot God and his purposes for them. And they put all of their efforts and all of their energy into making a great name for themselves. And so God cursed them and confused their languages. But in Acts 2 and 4, we read about an entirely different kind of community, a community that's not concerned about human purposes, human aspirations, but are concerned about the purposes of God and about making a great name for Jesus. And when the early church was formed together around that purpose, amazing things began to happen. People's needs were met. They were unified together in heart and in mind. They saw great things happen in their lives and the people around them. Daily, new people were becoming a part of their community. 
One of the most powerful messages that the world can see about who Jesus is is a community of people who believe the gospel and who live according to it. In addition to us proclaiming the gospel with our words, which we must do, the gospel in our day and time needs a community of people who believe the gospel and who live it out together. It was the quality of life of the Christian community in Jerusalem at that time that drew people to it. It was the way that they cared for one another, the way that they loved one another, the way that they sacrificed their own possessions for one another. It's the way they experienced belonging and solidarity, solidarity together as a community that attracted other people to them. And this is an important aspect of our witness to the world today. People in our world are increasingly suspicious of words. <laughs> increasingly suspicious, especially of the church's words to them. We must continue to speak words, but we also need to be a people, a community of people who live out the gospel as a demonstration to the world of what the gospel is all about. Is Broadway a place where people experience the forgiveness of Jesus in the actions of one another? Is Broadway a place where people's basic needs are being met? Is Broadway a place of true community where reconciliation and forgiveness is happening between one another? Is Broadway a place where people are experiencing healing in all sorts of ways, emotionally and physically and spiritually? I think it is in a lot of ways. But we can need to continue to do better and better and seeking to, be a, uh, seeking to be a visible witness to the world of what the gospel means in a community. This description of the early church is an example for us. It's a vision for us for our life together. But the last thing that I want to remind us today is that it's not a community that we can build on our own strength. It's not a community that we can build at our own strength. I know, I don't know how many times I in my own life have, have read this verse or have been in an elders meeting or a, a minister's meeting. We read this verse and we go, we should do this. <laughs> Sounds like a really good idea. Why don't we do this? And we come up with some plans and ideas and then we forget about them. We cannot program Acts chapter 2, 24 through 27 to happen. We need to be a people who are filled with the Spirit. The quality of life that was created in Jerusalem in that community at that time was a gift of the Holy Spirit to them. It was not something that they planned. It was not something they did on their own strength. It happened because they were a people who were filled with the Spirit. Our problem as a North American church is, is not that we don't have enough resources or that we don't know the truth or that we don't have enough information about what it means to live. It's not that we don't lack, uh, it's not that we lack tools to accomplish the tasks that we need as a church. It's not that we don't have good programs and materials for discipleship. We have all of those things in abundance and all of those things are useful to us. But in many ways, we have grown dependent on those resources that are given to us rather than dependent on the Spirit. The North American church is the most resourced, the most educated, the most programmed church that has ever existed in the history of Christianity. 
We have far more resources and training programs and seminars by far than the church has ever seen, and yet we remain shallow and we lack conviction, and we seem to not even want to be inconvenienced by our neighbor or by a brother in Christ, let alone lay down our lives for them. Human programs and resources by themselves cannot produce the fruit in our lives and in our church and in our community that we long to see. What we lack is the filling of the Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that created this community that we read about in Acts chapter 2 and 4. And the Holy Spirit fills us when we express our dependence on God, not on ourselves and on our own plans and our programs, but we, when we express our dependence on God through the one action of persistent prayer. Throughout the Gospels, and especially in the book of Acts, especially in the book of Acts, we see over and over and over again that Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit filled a person or filled a community of people after a time and season of prayer. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus himself, at his baptism, Luke tells us, as Jesus was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended and came upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost after the disciples had been spending ten days and nights in prayer. In Acts, after Peter and John, Acts chapter 3 uh, three and 4, as Peter and John were released from prison, it says that the believers were together, gathered, and they prayed all night long. And Luke is very careful to say in chapter 4, verse 31, that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they preached the word of God boldly. We are filled with the Spirit of God through our commitment to persistent prayer. This is a convicting and challenging word to this pastor who loves to learn and who loves information and who is very dependent oftentimes on books and resources and not on prayer in the Spirit. Our dependency on God is reflected in the seriousness with which we take prayer. If we want to be a people, a community who reflect the community of Acts chapter 2, We must be a people of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess to you that we have depended on our own strength, that we've depended on the words and thoughts of other people, And that we have been slow to seek you in prayer and to listen for your word in our lives. Lord, I thank you for convicting me of this this week. Lord, for any of my brothers and sisters in Christ who need this word today, God, I pray that you would convict them as well. And that we would become a people here at Broadway who express our dependence on you through persistent prayer. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.